0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, The Printed Page, Ten Favorite Books from 2014. It's for Sunday, January the 4th, 2015. Happy New Year to our readers around the world. Over the holidays, I've reviewed our reviews from the past year, 2014. Last week, I suggested ten favorite foreign films. This week, I turned to the printed page. Of course, there's no accounting for personal taste, but here are ten favorite books from the last year. And by way of reminder, don't miss our Journey with Jesus comprehensive index of our essays, books, films, poetry and music. After more than 10 years there are over 500 book reviews, 500 reviews of films from 85 countries, over 300 poems, and music reviews by David Werther. You can search our archives alphabetically by title, author, subject category, and by country. And if you ever get stuck, just go to the upper left corner of any page where you can search our site. And now, ten favorite books from 2014, in alphabetical order. First, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. The title, Americana, a Novel. Ephelma was the main protagonist and narrator in Adichie's new novel about how race and place shape our personal identities. Immigration intensifies this search for the true self, for it's often a time when we reinvent ourselves willingly or not, knowingly or not, into new versions of our former selves. This dynamic is further intensified by Adichie's story of a black Nigerian spending 13 years in white America and then returning to Nigeria. Wherever she turned, the encountered slippery layers of meaning that eluded her. Music, food, church, school, and work. Even one's bearing and demeanor revealed that fine-grained mark that culture stamps on people. Returning to Nigeria wasn't much easier. She was no longer sure what she knew was was new in Lagos and what was new in herself. And at a meeting of Nigerian returnees from the West, she feared that she had become the smug cosmopolitan Americana, who complained about all the good things they missed. But she couldn't help now seeing Nigeria through American eyes, and some of what she saw was not pretty. This is a powerful social, creek of social critique of race, identity, and belonging. Adichie's work has been translated into 30 languages. Number two, Scott Anderson, Lawrence in Arabia. War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, and the Making of the Middle East. Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence. Lawrence of Arabia, in popular imagination, was Britain's most legendary hero of World War I. He was also an enigmatic and controversial figure. Scott Anderson tries to separate the facts from the fiction. His book is primarily a biography of Lawrence's role in the Middle East theater of World War I, but it's also a group biography of three other major actors, the American William Yale worked for the Standard Oil Company gobbling up oil concessions while everyone else was at war. He became the primary intelligent asset for the United States in the Middle East. Kurt Prufer was a German spy, and Aaron Anderson was a brilliant agronomist fluent in six languages, a prominent Zionist, and leader of Jewish spy ring. Lawrence's story plays out on a larger canvas. The Turkish genocide of 800,000 Armenians, the Balfour Declaration supporting a Jewish state, the fall of the 600-year-old Ottoman Empire, the Bolshevik Revolution that overthrew the Russian Empire, the ruthless quest for oil, and the slaughter of 16 million people. Anderson is unsparing in his prose about the bureaucratic incompetence, the imperial hubris in ignorance, the violence of war that is dehumanizing rather than heroic, the complexity of Middle East tribal cultures, and the lessons still not learned even today by Westerners. (coughs) Number three, Sinon Antun. The Corpse Washer, a novel. Jawad Kazim, the protagonist and narrator in Antoun's second novel, is a fourth-generation corpse washer and shrouder from a poor Shiite family in Baghdad. It's not the life he wanted to live. In fact, he worked hard to avoid it, much to the disappointment of his father, who never understood Jawad's decision to study sculpture at the Academy of Fine Arts. But as a starving artist, he needed the money, and so he hoped to do his father's work only for a short time. Intune sets the novel in the long and dark shadow of Iraq's war with Iran, followed by the 1991 Gulf War, followed by the 2003 American invasion. Dictatorship and embargoes were bad enough But this is the stuff of nightmares for Jawab, whose bad dreams are sprinkled throughout the novel. And reality is even worse. He tenderly washes and wraps the corpses of the abandoned, the unidentified, and the unclaimed. Bodies that are mutilated, decapitated, and burned. Plucked from garbage dumps and fished out of the river. Antoun's novel is a unique perspective on the chaos, the carnage, and sectarian violence unleashed by the American liberation. Jawad himself is irreligious, but his vocation forces him to explore the most deeply human and therefore religious questions. That's difficult when you feel like a stranger who is alienated in your own country. Sidon Antoun was born and raised in Baghdad. He left after the 1991 Gulf War, and today is an associate professor at New York University. Next, Scott Cairns. The title, Idiot Psalms, 2014. Scott Cairns, the Catherine Payne Middlebush Chair in English, at the University of Missouri, has won numerous awards for his dozen books of poetry, memoirs, essays, and translations. This collection of 53 poems continues to explore his Eastern Orthodox faith, including his experiences at Orthodox monasteries like those on the holy mountain of Athos. Of special interest, the book gathers into one place 14 of his idiot psalms that have heretofore appeared in journals such as the Atlantic Monthly, the Paris Review, the New Republic, and Poetry. Cairns's poems exemplify the Eastern Orthodox apophatic tradition that begins by confessing our unknowing, They're a marvelous correction to the many ways that we trivialize the divine. Our Father in heaven is intimate, and sometimes even too close for comfort, but he is also infinite, and so beyond the fallen, finite knowledge of mere mortals. So our speech about the divine is never exact, always provisional, insufficient for its task. Our hearts are dull, our presumptions are many, our minds are cluttered, our spiritual impediments almost always countless. And yet sometimes we have inklings of awareness that are no less real. The good God has condescended, acquiesced to grant what little I might bear. So even though we ricochet between futility and audacity, it is good and right to pray with one of the lines in his poems. Being both distant and most near, grant in this obscurity a little light. Next, Dave Eggers. The title, The Circle, a Novel. May Holland is Dave Eggers' protagonist. She left her job at an old-school utility company, a so-called gulag that actually served a social purpose, to work at a company called The Circle in Silicon Valley, described as the most important and admired internet company in the world, the only company that really mattered at all. The Circle campus and everything about it is a Google-esque corporate utopia. My God, it's heaven, she gushed. There's everything anyone could want for work or play, including dorms where workers sleep. The circle is led by the three wise men. May's best friend, Annie, is a senior executive and part of the gang of 40 at the top of this pyramid. The more you learn about the circle, the more you realize that it's a case study of a cult. Its mantra is total transparency by all and for all. After all, circle is a community. The circle must be made whole, closed, completed. And so the core beliefs of the company, secrets are lies, sharing is caring, privacy is theft. Nothing should ever be deleted, which isn't a problem anyway because the powerful technologies of the circle make that impossible. As I read about May's fate in the circle, I kept thinking about the ancient insight of the desert father, Anthony the Great, of the fourth century, who said, A time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, You were mad. You are not like us. Next, a biography by Robert Hilburn. The title, Johnny Cash, The Life. Is there really any need for another book about Johnny Cash? Robert Hilburn, the music editor of the LA Times for 35 years, put this question to Lou Robbins, who managed Cash for 25 years. When asked how much of the Johnny Cash story had been told, Robbins replied, only about 20%. Cash himself wanted his full story to be told and admitted that his two autobiographies failed in that regard. Hilburn captures the many contradictions in Cash, beginning with his childhood picking cotton in rural Arkansas, to his super stardom as a cultural icon. He's unsparing in his depictions of Cash's drug addictions, womanizing, no-shows at numerous concerts and recording sessions, arrests, and the havoc and heartbreak that he caused his family. He also does an excellent job of depicting the many challenges that an artist like Cash must negotiate. Balancing artistic integrity and commercial viability. Remaining creative. Conflicting advice from corporate executives, producers, managers, friends, and family. Physical and mental exhaustion from a grueling lifestyle. And all the people who want a part of you making you always wonder who you can trust. Hilburn returns time and again to the baseline of Cash's life, his unapologetic Christian faith, which irritated so many people. How could someone so profligate be so pious, people asked. According to Hilburn, Cash's faith was always the genuine article and never a commercial ploy. He read the Bible daily, made a recording of the entire New Testament, took an online study course, and appeared in three dozen Billy Graham Crusades. Near the end of his life, Cash cut two songs that punctuated this point. There's Hurt, which some have hailed as the best music video ever, and has had 60 million online views. And then there's one called, When the Man Comes Around, which Hilburn calls, quote, the ultimate statement he was seeking, end quote. Next, jerome Lanier. Very small book called, You Are Not a Gadget. <coughs> jerome Lanier once described himself as a, quote unquote, weird outsider, He was born in New York City, but grew up in rural New Mexico. He entered college at age 13, but never finished a degree. His waist-length dreadlocks, his ample girth, and his high-pitched voice give him a guru demeanor. He's an artist, musician, and composer who has a world-class collection of rare instruments. In 2010, Time Magazine named Lanier one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Back in the 1980s, he was one of the inventors of virtual reality and one of the merry band of idealists. In this manifesto, though, he explains how his early sweet faith in the Internet revolution has turned sour and why he is mostly now a humanist softy. His target is what he calls the new religion of cybernetic totalism. Lanier contrasts the lifeless world of pure information with the rich mystery of being human. He defends human intelligence, judgment, and artistic creativity against the pseudo-wisdom of computer algorithms, search engines, and aggregators. Information technology, he says, is necessarily a form of social engineering. And the results, in his view, have been horrible. His book contains dozens of examples, but they are really just different aspects of a singular big mistake. The deep meaning of personhood is being reduced by illusions of bits. Facebook has given us fake friends. Google gives us free stuff but by linking search with advertisement, the user is really the used who has become the product. YouTube is little more than a platform for juvenilia. Gadget fetishism is everywhere. These are spiritual failures that degrade us, and they lead to all sorts of bad behavior. Very few people have made millions on the internet, but for the vast majority, Lanier says it's been a disaster. In some, And here I quote, cybernetic totalism has been bad for spirituality, morality, and business, resulting in a creeping degradation of our own qualities as human beings. Next, Sarah Miles, City of God, Faith in the Street. Fifteen years ago, Sarah Miles walked into St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in San Francisco without any premeditation, partook of the Eucharist, and experienced a radical conversion. Her newest book describes Miles' subsequent transformation from a respectable churchgoer to a lunatic evangelist, when in 2010 she joined a small group of people who took the ash Wednesday imposition of ashes, into the streets of her San Francisco neighborhood. She wanted to get beyond the tastefully enclosed museum of religious life. So they hit the streets of this most secular of cities. They knelt in McDonald's at bus stops and on the sidewalks in their black cassocks to pray and impose ashes. Yes, She felt self-conscious, fraudulent, awkward, and exposed. But guess what? People loved it. Why were people so eager for ashes and so effusive with gratitude? Ash Wednesday, it turns out, writes Miles, is the most honest of days when the church reminds you of what no one else in society will say, that from dust you came and to dust you will return we admit that we made a mess. In other words, the truth is a blessing. Number nine, Ari Shavit, my promised land, the triumph and tragedy of Israel. There's no other nation like Israel, writes Ari Shavit. Two themes in particular define this deeply personal narrative, occupation and intimidation. He writes, in the 21st century there is no other nation that is occupying another people as we do, and there is no other nation that is intimidated as we are. Israel has always lived with existential fear as a profoundly vulnerable island of six million Jews in a sea of 1.5 billion Muslims. But Israel was also founded by the violent expulsion and subjugation of 700,000 Palestinians and so it also lives with a legacy of moral tragedy. Shavit is a leading Israeli journalist, a columnist for Haaretz, Israel's leading liberal newspaper, a commentator on Israel public television, and a self-described peacenik. But his narrative never takes the easy way out of partisan ideology. Israel's story is full of ambiguity and core contradictions. He never resolves these contradictions and complexities, moral and political, internal and external, and thus the triumph and tragedy of Israel. Leon Wieseltier, the literary editor of the New Republic, calls Shavit's book, the least tendentious book about Israel I have ever read. And finally, number 10, Brad Tyre, the title, Opportunity Montana, Big Copper, Bad Water, and the Burial of an American landscape. As a journalist, Brad Tire investigated one of Montana's most glaring contradictions. In addition to its scenic superlatives, Montana is also home to one of the country's saddest environmental debacles. The story centers around the Clark Fork River, the biggest river in the state which was dammed way back in 1908, and consequently became the dump site for a hundred years of industrial copper mining waste. These toxins poison the land, the water, the air, the wildlife, and the people. And in particular, the tiny town called Opportunity, in its population of 500 people. There are 17 Superfund sites in Montana, By 1983, the EPA had designated the Clark Fork River as the biggest and baddest. In the the ensuing decades, and after hundreds of millions of dollars, the dam was removed and the river was rebuilt. But one question for any cleanup is where to haul all the toxic waste that you excavate from the contaminated site and the little town of Opportunity was the destination for three to four million cubic yards of mining sludge, courtesy of the Anaconda Copper Company's work there from 1910 to 1972. As Tyler writes, quote, the copper that wired America had a price, and Opportunity paid it. It paid twice, once with the original contamination, and then as the destination for the larger areas' cleanup waste. Tyer's book is part memoir and part environmental elegy. It's a carefully researched case study with no easy answers. Environmental justice, he writes, is an ethical inquiry into the equitable distribution of burdens. Things like 4,000-acre plots of toxic waste, resulting from endeavors that produce waste, which is to say, industrial economies. Anaconda and Arco made their millions, if not billions. Politicians preened. The lawyers lawyered. The government was feckless. The world got its copper. Environmental groups and experts haggled. The citizens complained. And in the end, Opportunity Montana paid for it all with an environmental death sentence. 10 books from 2014. And for 2015, a new book review. The author is Ann Thompson. The title, The $11 Billion Year, From Sundance to the Oscars, an inside look at the changing Hollywood system. New York, HarperCollins. It was published in 2014, and it's 297 pages long. It wasn't too long ago that if you wanted to watch a movie, you had two choices. Go to the theater, or wait three months to rent the DVD. Those days are now long gone. As with the disruptions in the music industry, despite the futile resistance of big corporations trying to hold on to their old ways, so now in the film industry, with the same sort of foot-dragging. Today we watch movies through all sorts of VOD, that is, Video On Demand, and on all sorts of gadgets, TiVo, Roku, PlayStation, Amazon, Hulu, iTunes, HBO, Netflix. Blockbuster's demise is a scary reminder if you are in the movie business. Ann Thompson has written about the movies for 25 years. In 2007, she founded a daily blog called Thompson on Hollywood. This is her first book. It suffers a bit from a blizzard of names and titles, and a few breathless anecdotes about private meetings with insiders, but it's nonetheless a good overview of how the system works. She organizes the book around the one calendar year, 2012, beginning with the Sundance Festival in January, and moving through the other festivals and events. Each chapter considers a different facet of the industry. In 2012 there were 663 movies released that together generated 11 billion dollars and thus the book's title. Whereas six big studios once controlled the movie business, today it's an industry in the throes of radical change. Digital was once a technical novelty, but it won't be long before it's the only format. The big studios are risk averse, and so they make formulaic films. The theaters and the studios are always in a tug-of-war. The global market accounts for over half of gross revenues. Even the biggest actors and directors no longer command guaranteed paychecks. And the independent people struggle with financing, production, and distribution. HBO and Netflix make their own movies and television series. And so, in the final sentence of her book, Ann Thompson concludes that the movie industry must, quote, adapt or die. Once again, The 11 Billion Dollar Year by Ann Thompson. For Movies This Week, I review Fury, from 2014. Brad Pitt stars as a tank commander named War Daddy in this World War II drama, but the real focus is on a character called Norm. He's a skinny new kid who joins them as a forward gunner. Norm was trained as a clerk typist, had eight weeks of basic training, and no combat experience. Thrown in with these hardened warriors, he's scared to death as they battle behind enemy lines. He wants to keep his hands and conscience clean, but that is not to be. The message of this movie, if there is one, is when Wardaddy Daddy tells Norm, ideals are peaceful, but history is violent. The movie reminded me of the aphorism of William Sloan Coffin, former chaplain at Yale, who once said that war turns some boys into men, and it turns others into animals. In his New Yorker review, David Denby said that this movie, Fury, was one of the greatest war movies ever, a kind of war horror film, which is, of course, what good combat films should be. Once again, Brad Pitt, Fury. And for the new year, and the new year week, the new year 2015, we posted a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, who lived from 1809 to 1892. It's called A New Year's Poem. I think you'll recognize it. Ring out wild bells to the wild sky, the flying cloud, the frosty light. The year is dying in the night. Ring out wild bells and let him die. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go. Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind for those that here we see no more. Ring out the feud of rich and poor. Ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out a slowly dying cause in ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, purer laws. Ring out the want the care, the sin, the faithless coldness of the times. Ring out, ring out my mournful rhymes, but ring the four minstrel in. Ring out false pride and place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right, ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand wars of old. Ring in the thousand years of peace. Ring in the valiant man and free, the larger heart, the kindlier hand. Ring out the darkness of the land. Ring in the Christ that is to be. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, January 4th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.